Hey, it's MPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Whenever I hear something on the news about AI, a part of me does think, oh, cool, another thing to worry about on the list of you know, other vague existential threats in the back of my head. But you know, you can't just not engage with this very real thing that is oncoming. So today, we've got two different perspectives on AI. In a bit, we'll hear from cartoonist Amy Kurzweil, who used AI to connect with her late grandfather. But first, Mustafa Suleiman is someone who works in AI, helped co-found an AI company. So he isn't some Luddite. But his book, The Coming Wave, is a warning about AI. And he told NPR Steve Inskeep that, yes, AI is this new and dangerous and complicated thing. But we have in the past used government regulation to turn previously scary things into just everyday conveniences. This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead. Shipwreck, treachery, and survival at the edge of the world by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. A leading voice in artificial intelligence favors regulation of it. Mustafa Suleiman co-founded the AI firm DeepMind, and he worries about the consequences of his own creations. Suleiman says governments need to prevent anyone from using AI to destabilize the world. We have to start really thinking about the precautionary principle. I mean, the consequences are so vast and potentially so huge, both positive and negative, that this is a moment when we need strong governments and proactive intervention. By now, the real and potential dangers of AI are well known. Various applications can make it easier to commit fraud, spread misinformation, or analyze data to surveil people. At some point, high-powered computers may outthink or outwit the human race. Suleiman's book, The Coming Wave, recounts his efforts to warn his fellow tech entrepreneurs in California. It's a little awkward in Silicon Valley sometimes because, um, you know, that it's just not the default culture. Um, I think, you know, American culture in general and Silicon Valley in particular has benefited enormously from relentless optimism. And I am an optimist. I, I, I'm a builder. I'm a creator. I have a new startup now called Inflection AI and creating an AI called Pi. Uh, which stands for personal intelligence, which is a personal AI, a conversational, fluent, interactive AI. Hmm. So I believe in making things and building things at huge scale. But at the same time, you know, I think wisdom in the 21st century is about trying to hold multiple contradictory ideas in tension at the same time. Okay, help me think this through then. You're making a comparison with nuclear nonproliferation which is something that is obviously not perfect. Sometimes another country gets a nuclear weapon or gets close to one, but there are all kinds of systems in place around the world to limit the access to nuclear technology and especially technology that can be used to make a bomb. You're saying you would like something like that for artificial intelligence. But let me ask about another factor that you raise. I took a note of one of the subheads of one of your chapters. It is the plummeting cost of power. What is that when it comes to computing, and how does that complicate the effort to regulate or contain it? I mean, AI is an amplifier of good power and bad power. AI is going to be a tool to help people make predictions and get things done in the real world and the digital world. Your AI is going to learn to 
book things for you on the internet, buy things for you, initiate, you know, new creative endeavors. It's going to be like a research assistant or a creative, you know, partner um, helping you to get things done. And many people will use that for, you know, incredibly good outcomes. And some people will use it to sow instability. So the plummeting cost of power means that it's going to be cheaper and easier to get things done at scale in the digital world. That's what makes me wonder about the analogy with nuclear nonproliferation. Making a nuclear weapon is hard and expensive, especially if you need to make the material for it. You're telling me that it's going to get cheaper and cheaper all the time to deploy artificial intelligence in ways that may be harmful. Does that make containment impossible? That's exactly the challenge that we face. If you if um, intelligence follows the same cost curve trajectory as the microchip which has come down a millionfold in the last 50 years, right? How do we create contained technologies that make sure that they don't end up representing a threat to the nation state? Because people who ultimately may have state-like powers, you know, the ability to really organize at huge scale, to intervene in cyber networks, to attack our security, you know, that is just going to get cheaper and cheaper and easier to, to access. Can we dwell uh, in a terrifying way for a moment on the risks when you talk about the risks to the nation state? We're just talking about countries, whether they're a democratic country or an authoritarian country. And I think you're telling me that right now, in order to have enormous power over people, the government of China needs a million people in an intelligence agency, hypothetically. And it could be that one person ultimately has that kind of power to surveil people. Is that the kind of danger you're talking about? That is unfortunately correct. Uh, you know, I hate to say it, but power is becoming compressed, right? Look at these image generation models. Every image that has been put on the open web that has been openly and publicly available is now compressed into a two gigabyte file, which can be used to generate new images from scratch. And anybody can get access to that two gigabyte file in open source. But you're exactly right. It also represents a very new dynamic in the unfolding of power in our civilization. What are the odds that the nation state, as we were saying, uh, can possibly regulate this, particularly given that there are a couple hundred of them in the world? We've regulated many such complex things in the past. Look at how, and, and every new technology that arises initially feels scary and unfamiliar and confusing. In the book, um, I found this incredible anecdote from the arrival of the first steam train in Liverpool. The Member of Parliament for Liverpool and the Prime Minister at the time, along with a huge celebration party, were so excited to see this new beast, as they called it, arriving on the tracks, that they actually stood on the tracks to welcome the train coming in. And in fact, the train, they had no concept that the train wouldn't stop. Hmm. And it actually ran through the celebration party and killed the member of parliament. And so that's how unfamiliar and strange and obscure things can be. And then within an instant, trains become a tool which are, you know, sort of unremarkable and completely integrated within our lives. And so we've done this many times with airline safety, with electricity, with nuclear safety, at first, it seems alien and confusing. And then very quickly, we put in place extremely rigorous safety frameworks for governing these technologies. I think that we have to be confident and optimistic that if we engage proactively in our governance mechanisms and stop denigrating them and putting public servants down, you know, we can we can make this work. <laughs> 
Mustafa Suleiman is the author of The Coming Wave, Technology, Power, and the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma, which could be summarized as a call for us to step out of the way of the train. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. This was great. Thank you. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. I know it's hacky to say when talking about artificial intelligence, but this next interview really, truly does feel like a bit of science fiction. Amy Kurzweil's graphic novel, Artificial, A Love Story, is about using AI to connect with family members who have since died, using the things they've left behind as the building blocks for a lasting connection. And she notes to NPR's Chloe Veltman that while we often use the term artificial to mean something plastic, you know, something inhuman, the original definition of the word is actually quite human. In her new graphic memoir, Artificial, A Love Story, New Yorker cartoonist and writer Amy Kurzweil explores how her father, famed futurist and inventor Ray Kurzweil, attempts to bring her dead grandfather, Frederick Kurzweil, back to life through AI, sort of. Ray Kurzweil builds the chatbot, a.k.a. Fredbot, using his father's documents. Fred Kurzweil died in 1970. He was a talented conductor, pianist and educator from Vienna who fled the Nazis just before Kristallnacht in 1938 to begin a new life in the United States. Author Amy Kurzweil joined me for a conversation about her new book in San Francisco. So Amy, why did you decide to write Artificial? Well, as a graphic memoirist, I'm fascinated with how memory works and what we remember and why. And when I heard about my father's ambition to build a chatbot created from the archives of my grandfather's writing, I just felt like that was the perfect union of both of our interests and an opportunity for me to get to know this grandfather that I never met. It turned out that in getting to know him, I, I did start to think more about my own relationship to art and my own relationship to other people. The full title of the book is Artificial, A Love Story. What makes this book a love story? We tend to have these sort of negative associations with what's artificial. We think what's artificial is fake. But an original definition of artificial is the things that we make with our hands. And when you think about the relationship between artifice and love, I wanted the book to be asking, how can AI facilitate human connection? And how does art and writing facilitate human connection? 
You arguably wouldn't have been able to embark upon this project if your dad and his father before him weren't good at holding on to objects from the past. And the book is packed with these meticulously rendered images of your grandfather's papers, of family photographs, of some of the many ornamental cats and other tchotchkes that adorn your father's apartment and your childhood home. What's the relationship, Amy, between people's things and people's lives? And why was it important for you to physically document all of this stuff in your book drawing is this really laborious and time-consuming process that you know requires a lot of attention to detail and so I felt like if I was going to draw these documents I would know them more deeply and in a kind of embodied way and so when I think about the sort of the things that people leave behind there's an imprint of them and so when you spend time with people's documents you feel their presence There's a lovely symmetry between this book, which focuses on the men in your family, and your previous book, Flying Couch, which focuses on the women. How else do these two books relate to each other? In Jewish memory, we tend to think about two kinds of loss in relationship to the Holocaust specifically. There's the loss of people, the loss of homes, and then there's annihilation. You know, you've not only lost people, but you've lost all documentation of them and all trace of them. In my grandmother's story, which I documented in my first book, Flying Couch, she's coming from an annihilation legacy. Her entire family was killed, and we don't even have photographs of them. We don't have a scrap of documentation of their existence. So the only way that these people exist is actually in the bodies of my grandmother, my mother, me, and our, you know, our family. Uh, in artificial... There is not a history of annihilation. There is a history of obsessive documentation because in the case of my grandfather and Viennese and and German and, and other types of Jews, documentation was how you saved your life. The way that they navigated their exit from Vienna was through waiting in lines, you know, to show somebody a paper that proved that they didn't have a dog or show somebody a paper that they had these things in their bank account that they were going to forfeit. And so saving every scrap of paper that documented your existence was your ticket to leave this bureaucratic fascist regime. One of the themes that comes up in your book is pattern and the recognition of pattern. And it's fun to see how this plays out in the structure of the narrative and the approach to illustration. So, for example, you'll sometimes string a bunch of images together on a page with little variation between them. To me, it feels a bit like a robot malfunctioning in some ways. Um, What's this almost repetition about? I was very attentive to the tiniest little change that I would make when I would, you know, draw my grandfather's portrait. And then my hand would slip and it would be a millimeter over to the left. And those tiny little millimeters of imprecision just carried so much weight. And I just found that process so interesting that as a human, I can't repeat exactly. I think human memory is like that, too, that we can't remember things exactly as they happen. Every time we tell a story, we change it a little bit and we push it in a usually more dramatic direction. And so I just found that to be a really interesting reminder of what human memory and human knowledge is in relationship to the way that machines remember, which is with more perfection. If someone were to create an Amy bot using AI based on the information about your life currently available, your books, your journals and so on, how faithful a rendering do you think it would be? The chatbot of Amy would take me to surprising forgotten elements of my writing and of my art. I would actually like that because 
you know, I just moved and like my studio is just overflowing with like journals and <laughs> documents and they're all mislabeled and, you know, everything's a mess. That experience of using an AI to help me navigate, that would be really useful and surprising and meaningful, but it, it's, you know, it's not going to be uh, me. It's going to be like a way of accessing my past. And lastly, I've been admiring your fabulous earrings made out of two pencils. Um, tell me about those. The drafts of Artificial were sketched with Blackwing pencils. And uh, Blackwing pencils are notoriously beautiful and notoriously very soft. And so I wore them down to the nubs and I have boxes and boxes of these pencil stubs. And I wanted to turn them into earrings. So I did. <laughs> They're lovely. Amy Kurzweil is the author of Artificial, A Love Story. The book comes out on October 17th from Catapult. Thanks for the great conversation, Amy. Thank you. Pleasure to talk with you. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Armiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. Show elements for this week were produced and edited by Julie Deppenbrock, Rina Advani, Jason Fuller, Tinbi Ermias, Lennon Sherborne, Hadil Alsaji, and Ben Abrams. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch.